Welcome to Counter Apologetics. Welcome, everyone. I'm your host, Emerson Green. So Catholic Answers recently responded to a question I asked when I was 19. I had recounted on Twitter how I'd asked Frank Turek during a Q&A how he would handle a particular issue that had been bothering me at the time. It was an earnest question, and I'd been wrestling with my faith for months. I was in the middle of this period of spiritual turmoil, and that's how I even ended up at an apologetics conference in Colorado, where Turek and dozens of other apologists were speaking. I didn't realize it at the time, but the two-week conference would be my last stop before deconverting. Of the dozens of issues that bothered me, one of them was the incongruity between the God of the Old Testament and the depiction of Jesus in the New Testament. I remember asking Frank Turek in person during a Q&A how he reconciled the portrayals of God in the Old Testament and New Testament, since it seemed like there was a personality change. He said, there wasn't one. Next question. Anyway, I deconverted a week later. If it isn't already clear, I didn't deconvert because of Turek's shallow response. He obviously didn't help, but it was a long road from Christianity to atheism, and it didn't happen because of one bad answer from one person. That didn't stop a lot of uncharitable theists from saying that's exactly what happened, but what can you do? Of course, Frank Turek's apologetics are not designed to help convert non-believers or help those who are seriously doubting. They're an elaborate exercise in preaching to the choir, convincing those who are already convinced that the Christian worldview is rationally defensible. Shutting down a good question with pious overconfidence is an effective way of achieving the latter, but not the former. So on to the article, as Joe Heschmeyer writes for Catholic.com, quote, I've never heard Turek's side of the story, but regardless, this is a good reminder for apologists not to be smug and dismissive. St. Peter tells Christians, Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who calls you to account for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and reverence. So what would be a better answer to Emerson's question? End quote. Heschmeyer goes on to offer an explanation that will probably be familiar to many of you. Just as a parent would answer a question differently coming from a six-year-old, then the same question coming from a 36-year-old, so God presents himself and his message differently to humanity at different stages of its development. Quote, As any parent or teacher can tell you, teaching small children is much different than teaching teenagers or adults. Throughout the Old Testament itself, we see a shift in how God relates to his people, not because he's changed, but because they have. End quote. On YouTube, Wired has several videos in which an expert will explain the same concept to different people at varying levels of skill and knowledge. That's essentially what God has done in the Bible, according to this defense. That you wouldn't answer the question of a six-year-old in the same way you'd answer a grown adult doesn't mean you changed, or the message fundamentally changed. It means your audience changed. They're working with different concepts, limitations, life experiences, and bases of knowledge. The main problem with the parenthood analogy is that nearly all its force depends on speaking at a level of generality and abstraction that conveniently glosses over the extent of the moral dissonance between the Old and New Testaments. To paraphrase David Bentley Hart, if we can't know there's a difference between laying down one's life for the world and exterminating the inhabitants of a city down to the last infant, then what can we know? The reason this issue is so often raised is because of the lack of harmony and complementarity. 
This might not have ever come up if it all boiled down to a difference in complexity and depth that corresponded with a change in audience. I suppose that when humanity was spiritually six, God condoned the practice of owning other humans as property and ordered the children of Canaanite tribes to be slaughtered. Then when we were spiritually 36, he commanded us to love our neighbor as ourselves. How exactly does the parenthood analogy square the command of genocide with the command to love our neighbor as ourselves? This approach to the problem only works if we don't get too specific about the various portrayals of God. Can we convince ourselves that Jesus Christ was in any way involved with Elisha and the two bears? Compare his disposition as he's talking about millstones around necks to that of the vindictive psychopath who oversaw the mauling of 42 young boys over a joke. To quote Charles Templeton, The God of the Old Testament is utterly unlike the God believed in by most practicing Christians. He's an all-too-human deity with human failings, weaknesses, and passions of men, but on a grand scale. His justice is, by modern standards, outrageous, and his prejudices are deep-seated and inflexible. He is biased, querulous, vindictive, and jealous of his prerogatives. End quote. Plenty have tried to reconcile the stark differences between Jesus and Yahweh and their respective moral characters, but some early Christians gave up entirely. Marcionism emerged because the loving God revealed through Christ was impossible to harmonize with the malevolence of Yahweh and all his genocide-commanding, child-murdering, blood-drenched glory. After all, which makes more sense, that these are the same being, or that the Bible is an unsystematic collection of texts written with no guidance of divine inspiration by different authors at different times with clashing agendas and disparate understandings of God? No parenthood analogy or borderline relativistic point about context, truly bridges the chasm between Yahweh and the person of Jesus Christ. In Good God, a response, David Bentley Hart writes, quote, You ask if I think the Yahweh of the Old Testament was good. First of all, there is no single Yahweh in the Hebrew corpus. The various texts that the Second Temple redactors collated into the Torah and Tanakh emanate from various epochs in the development of Canaanite and Israelite religion, and reflect the spiritual sensibilities of very different moments in the evolution of what would in time become Judaism. Most of the Hebrew Bible is polytheistic, and Yahweh is a figure in a shifting pantheon of Elohim, or deities. In the later prophets, he is, for the most part, a very good God, and even appears to have become something like God in the fullest sense. But in most of the Old Testament, he is, of course, presented as quite evil. A blood-drenched, cruel, war-making, genocidal, irascible, murderous, jealous storm god. Neither he nor his rival or king or father or equal or alter ego, depending on which era of Canaanite and Israelite religion we are talking about, is a good god. Each is a psychologically limited mythic figure from a rich but violent ancient Near Eastern culture, or more accurately, two cultures that progressively amalgamated over many centuries. If fallen reason were really as debile as you suggest it is, if we could not even tell the difference between good and evil, between laying down one's life for the world and exterminating the inhabitants of a city down to the last babe in arms, then neither would we have any warrant for believing anything at all. To think that our concepts and language, especially about the good, could be that equivocal is to embrace an epistemic and moral nihilism that is logically self-defeating. This is not the true gospel and one slanders the God revealed in Christ by suggesting that it is. End quote. Christians are not doing themselves any favors by pretending to be unable to see the difference between Yahweh and Jesus. Admitting that there at least seems to be a problem here doesn't mean that you're inexorably hurtling towards atheism. It just means you're being honest with yourself.
There are other problems with the parenthood analogy. It's not as if the human beings living a few thousand years ago were a different species. As the atheist hive mind at Real Atheology put it, what reason do we have for thinking the people in the Old Testament are significantly different from those in the New Testament so as to justify the use of such a dramatic analogy? They were moral agents, just like us. Obviously, I have no issue with the notion of objective moral progress. I think we've made quite a bit of it. But I don't look back at our ancestors with the degree of snobbery that would be necessary to view them as moral toddlers. Earlier, I alluded to relativism. Occasionally, the defense of God's different rules for different times policy will veer into something that looks like moral relativism. As a moral realist, I think there are objective facts about right and wrong. For example, it's true that nurturing an infant is better than brutalizing one, regardless of how you or anyone else, including God, feels about it. The badness of harming an infant doesn't depend on you, or society's approval, or God's commands, or which covenant you happen to be living under. If it would be wrong for me to kill every last Canaanite infant, then it would be wrong for the Israelites as well. I admire Joe's willingness to side with atheists when it seems to him that we're in the right. He referred to Turek's response as smug and dismissive, and encouraged fellow Christian apologists not to quote, respond to good questions like this one in the way Turek responded. Of course, Heschmeyer's not alone. This story with Turek initially resurfaced in my mind after seeing a couple recent interviews with Paul Copen on his book, Is God a Vindictive Bully? Reconciling Portrayals of God in the Old and New Testaments. According to many patently dishonest Christians, there's simply nothing to explain here. There's not even apparent discord between Jesus and Yahweh. I'd like to congratulate Dr. Copen on managing to write an entire book about nothing. And to those Christians who say they just don't see a difference between Jesus and Yahweh, do you think you're helping doubting Christians or non-believers when you glibly declare that there's not even anything to talk about here? Even though I don't buy Heschmeyer's answer, I still respect him a hell of a lot more than Turek, who dismissed the whole thing as a non-problem, which proved nothing except that some Christians actually believe you need to blind yourself to what's right in front of you in order to protect Christianity. If every believer were like that, arguing against Christianity would be a lot easier. So in closing, I'd like to thank Joe Heschmeyer for taking the time to respond to this question, and for doing so with charity and empathy and kindness. So thank you for listening. I've been Emerson Green, and I'll see you next time.